0: Scientific Ghosts by Andrew Wilson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Scientific Ghosts by Andrew Wilson. Modern science has made us aware that the old belief in apparitions rested on nothing more than elusive fancies caused by some kind of physical derangement of the person so affected. It is important that young persons should be made thoroughly aware of the fact that there never was and never will be any such fancy which is not capable of being explained upon natural grounds. A person in weak health, though in perfect possession of all his faculties, begins to be troubled by waking visions of persons with whom he may be familiar, or who may have been long dead, or who sometimes may appear as perfect strangers to him. The specters who flit before him come like shadows and so depart they represent in the most perfect manner the reproductions of things that are or were utterly intangible creations the subject of these visitations may hear the spectres converse and they may even talk in turn to him he is perfectly aware of their visionary nature and is as convinced of their unreality as is the friend who sees them not and to whom the phantoms are described no suspicions of insane delusion as to these visitations can be entertained for a moment and the question may therefore naturally be put to the man of science, how can these illusions be accounted for? The answer is to be found in one of the simplest studies in the physiology of nerves and of mind, and shows us that these illusions have a material basis, or that, in the words of the poet, the shadow proves the substance true. To thoroughly elucidate the subject of illusions within a brief space, we may begin by selecting one or two illustrations of elusive vision such as have been recorded for instruction and edification, in the pages of The Physiologist. One of the best-known cases, deriving its interest from the fact that the subject of the visitations in question himself narrates the facts, is that of Nikolai, a well-known citizen and bookseller of Berlin, who read an account of his case before the Berlin Academy of Sciences. We shall give the account in his own words, quote, During the few latter months of the year 1790, says Nikolai, I had experienced several melancholy incidents which deeply affected me, particularly in September from which time I suffered an almost uninterrupted series of misfortunes that affected me with the most poignant grief. I was accustomed to be bled twice a year, and this had been done once on the ninth of July, but was omitted to be repeated at the end of the year 1790. I had in January and February of the year 1791 the additional misfortune to experience several extremely unpleasant circumstances which were followed on the twenty-fourth of february by a most violent altercation my wife and another person came into my apartment in the morning in order to console me but i was too much agitated by a series of incidents which had most powerfully affected my moral feeling to be capable of attending to them on a sudden i perceived at about the distance of ten steps a form like that of a deceased person i pointed at it asking my wife if she did not see it it was but natural that she should not see anything my question therefore alarmed her very much and she sent immediately for a physician the phantasm continued for some minutes i grew at length more calm and being extremely exhausted fell into a restless sleep which lasted about half an hour the physician ascribed the vision to violent mental emotion and hoped there would be no return but the violent agitation of my mind had in some way disordered my nerves, and produced further consequences, which deserve a more minute description. At four in the afternoon the form which I had seen in the morning reappeared. I was by myself when this happened, and being rather uneasy at the incident, went to my wife's apartment, but there likewise I was persecuted by the form, which, however, at intervals disappeared, and always presented itself in a standing posture about six o'clock there appeared also several walking figures which had no connection with the first after the first day the form of the deceased person no more appeared but its place was supplied with many other phantasms sometimes representing acquaintances but mostly strangers those whom i knew were composed of living and deceased persons but the number of the latter was comparatively small when i shut my eyes these forms would sometimes vanish entirely though there were instances when I beheld them with my eyes closed, yet when they disappeared on such occasions, they generally returned when I opened my eyes. They all appeared to me in their natural size and as distinct as if alive, exhibiting different shades of carnation in the uncovered parts, as well as different colors and fashions in their dresses, though the colors seemed somewhat paler than in real nature. None of the figures appeared particularly terrible, comical, or disgusting most of them being an indifferent shape and some presenting a pleasing aspect the longer these persons continued to visit me the more frequently did they return while at the same time they increased in number about four weeks after they had first appeared i also began to hear them talk sometimes among themselves but more frequently they addressed their discourse to me their speeches being uncommonly short and never of an unpleasant turn At different times there appeared to me both dear and sensible friends of both sexes, whose addresses tended to appease my grief, which had not yet wholly subsided. Their consolatory speeches were in general addressed to me when I was alone. Sometimes, however, I was accosted by these consoling friends while I was engaged in company, and not unfrequently, while real persons were speaking to me. The consolatory addresses consisted sometimes of abrupt phrases, and at other times they were regularly executed. Such was Nikolai's account of the phantom visitors who addressed and consoled him in his domestic affliction. It is interesting to pursue still further his account of their disappearance. The reader will recollect that Nikolai had neglected to repeat at the end of 1790 the bloodletting in which it was customary in the days we speak of for our forefathers to indulge it was at last decided that leeches should be used and on april twentieth seventeen ninety one at eleven o'clock in the morning Nikolai informs us the operation was performed Quote, no person he continues was with me besides the surgeon but during the operation my chamber was crowded with human visions of all descriptions this continued uninterruptedly till about half an hour after four o'clock just when my digestion commenced i then perceived that they began to move more slowly soon after their colour began to fade and at seven o'clock they were entirely white but they moved very little though the forms were as distinct as before growing however by degrees more obscure yet not fewer in number as had generally been the case they now seemed to dissolve in the air while fragments of some of them continued visible for a considerable time About eight o'clock, the room was entirely cleared of my fantastic visitors. Since that time, adds Nikolai, I have felt twice or three times a sensation as if they were going to reappear, without, however, actually seeing anything. The same sensation surprised me just before I drew up this account, while I was examining some papers relative to these phenomena, which I had drawn up in the year 1791." such is an historical account of what may appear to the senses of a sane and reasonable individual before entering on their scientific explanation it will be advisable to give one or two further examples of the phenomena in question on the occasion of the fire which destroyed part of the crystal palace in the winter of eighteen sixty six and sixty seven part of the menagerie had been sacrificed to the flames the chimpanzee however was believed to have escaped from his cage and was presently seen on the roof endeavoring to save himself by clutching in wild despair one of the iron beams which the fire had spared the struggles of the animal were watched with an intense curiosity mingled with horror and sympathy for the supposed fate which awaited the unfortunate monkey what was the surprise of the spectators of an imminent tragedy to find that the object which in the guise of a terrified ape had excited their fears resolved itself into a piece of canvas blind so tattered that to the eye of the imagination, and when moved by the wind, it presented the exact counterpart of a struggling animal. Such an example is of a special interest, because it proves to us that not one person alone, but a large number of spectators, may be deceived by an object imperfectly seen, and aided in the illusion by a vivid imagination into fancying all the details of a spectacle of which the chief actor is entirely a myth. A singular case has been given on strict medical authority of a lady who, walking from Penryn to Falmouth, her mind being occupied with the subject of drinking fountains, was certain she saw in the road a newly erected fountain bearing the inscription, quote, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Unquote. As a matter of course, she mentioned her interest in seeing such an erection to the daughters of the gentleman who was supposed to have placed the fountain in its position they assured her that no such fountain was in existence but convinced of the reality of her senses on the ground that seeing is believing she repaired to the spot where she had seen the fountain only to find however a few scattered stones in place of the expected erection we may now turn to consider the scientific explanation of such curious phenomena in human existence the causes of these illusions are not difficult to understand since they in reality depend upon a slight derangement of the powers whereby we see and hear in an ordinary and normal method to make our meaning clear let us briefly consider what takes place in ordinary sensation when we see or hear the objects and sounds of everyday existence the eye alighting on an object transfers an impression of that object to the brain through the special optic nerve of sight which leads from the eye to the part of the brain exercising the sense of sight. We in reality do not see with the eye. That organ is merely an arrangement of lenses adapted to receive, focus, and otherwise adjust rays of light streaming from the objects we see. The function of the eye is simply that of adjusting and correlating the conditions necessary for the production of an impression. This impression is carried in due course to a special part of the brain where it becomes transformed into a special sensation, that of sight. We thus truly see not with the eye, but with the brain, or rather with that portion of the brain which lies in direct relation with the nerves of sight. The eye represents the lenses of the photographer's camera, but the brain corresponds to the sensitive plate which receives the image of the sitter, and on which all subsequent alterations of the image are effected of the other senses the same prominent feature may also be expressed namely that in the brain and not in the mere organ of sense must be allocated the true seat of knowledge the ear modifies waves of sound but it is the brain which distinguishes appreciates and acts upon the information conveyed by the organ of hearing the finger touches an object but the seat of knowledge does not exist at the extremity of the hand the impression of touch is duly conveyed to the brain as before there to be analyzed commented upon and if necessary acted upon as well on the appreciation of the simple fact that the brain is the true seat of the senses rests the whole explanation of the ghosts and apparitions which occasionally attend the footsteps and meet the eyes of humanity when we are conscious of looking at a real object a sensation of sight is formed in the brain as we have seen such a sensation we call an objective one because it is derived from a veritable object so also when we hear a tune played by a person whom we see or of whose existence even when unseen we entertain no doubt the sensation of sound is then called objective but there are many familiar instances in which the power of the mind to reproduce the sensations sights and sounds we have received is demonstrated the daydreamer can sometimes bring the scenes in which he has once taken part so vividly before his mental gaze that his reverie may actually be broken by the words which unconsciously flow from his lips as his imagination starts into bodily action such a power of fancy and imagination is the beginning or faint imitation of a still more powerful means which we possess of bringing before ourselves the forms and scenes which have once been objectively present with us in the dream this power is illustrated typically enough from the background of consciousness so to speak we project forwards in our sleep the pictures which a busy brain is reproducing or it may be piecing together the odds and ends of its fancy to form the ludicrous combinations we are familiar with in the land of nod and if we carry the idea of this same power being exercised in our waking moments to form the ghosts of science the explanation of the otherwise curious and mysterious subject of elusive visions will be complete. We know then that the brain has the ordinary power of forming images which may be projected outwards in the form of the fancies of everyday life. But these projected fancies may grow into plain and apparent sensations or images under the requisite conditions. When we hear a ringing in the ears, we know perfectly well that no objective sound exists, and scientifically we say that the sensation of hearing in such a case is an internal or subjective one when we see flashes of light which have no existence in the outside world on which we happen to be gazing we explain their occurrence in the same way now on such a basis the ghosts of science are both raised and laid the images and phantoms of Nikolai, like the sparks or flashes of light are subjective sensations They arise, in other words, from some irritation of that part of the brain which would have received the impression of sight had the objects in question had an actual existence. But the subject also involves a reference to bodily condition and to memory itself. Primarily, it will be found that elusive visions appear only when the health of the subject of these visitations is in a weakly state. The derangement of the health is the primary cause of these curious states it is however equally worthy of remark that many of the phantoms of nikolai were persons whom he knew such visions then may be supposed to simply represent the effects of very recent images which had been received and stored in the brain and which were evolved by the exercise of unconscious memory of the deceased persons whose images appeared to him the same remark may be made memory again reproducing by the subjective impressions of the brain the forms of dead friends but what, it may be asked, of the strange visions whom Nikolai did not recognize? The reply which science offers is that these also were images or conceptions of persons whom Nikolai must have seen at some time, but whom he could not remember, mysterious reproductions by the brain of events that had been impressed thereon, but which had escaped remembrance by ordinary memory. Even the characters whom Nikolai may have simply heard described could be thus produced and could present, apparently, the images of persons with whom he was not, as a matter of conscious memory, familiar. The brain, in other words, registers and remembers more than memory can evolve, and it is reasonable to conceive that forgotten images of things or persons once seen form the mysterious strangers of Nikolai's waking dreams. It is noteworthy that only after a long period of visitation from his fantastic friends did Nikolai begin to hear them speak. Thus, a sense of hearing had also come in time to lend its aid in propagating the illusions, and the fact that the visions addressed Nikolai concerning his own immediate affairs and his personal griefs and sorrows clearly shows the unconscious action of a mind which was brooding over its own trials, and which was evolving from within itself the comfort and consolation of kindly friends. Last of all, that the material basis of these visionary friends resided in the weekly body of their host is proved by their disappearance on the resumption of the customary bloodletting and the improvement of the health an additional fact showing the relation of the healthy body to the sound mind one of the most interesting cases of vision seeing by a person of culture and intelligence is that related in the athenium of january 10th 1880 by the reverend dr jessop who in lord orford's library When engaged in copying some literary notes, saw a large white hand, and then, as he tells us, perceived, quote, the figure of a somewhat large man, with his back to the fire, bending slightly over the table, and apparently examining the pile of books I had been at work upon. The figure was dressed in some antique ecclesiastical garb. The figure vanished when Dr. Jessop made a movement with his arm but reappeared and again vanished when the reverend narrator threw down a book with which he had been engaged dr Jessop's recital called forth considerable comment and amongst others a letter from the present writer detailing the familiar theory based on the principles of subjective sensations treated of in the present paper after noticing the fashion in which the subjective sensations became projected forwards the author says Athenium, january seventeenth eighteen eighty the only point concerning which any dubiety exists concerns the exact origin of the specific images which appear as the result of subjective sensory action my own idea is that almost invariably the projected image is that of a person we have seen and read about in Doctor Jessup's case, there is one fact which seems to weigh materially in favor of the idea that the vision which appeared to him in Lord Orford's library was an unconscious reproduction of some mental image or figure about which the doctor may very likely have concerned himself in the way of antiquarian study. Unquote. It is most interesting to observe that in the succeeding number of the Athenaeum, Mister Walter Rye writes, Doctor A Wilson's solution that the spectre was an unconscious reproduction of some mental image or figure about which dr jessup may very likely have concerned himself in the way of antiquarian study seems the right one and i think i can identify the ghost the ecclesiastically dressed large man with closely cut reddish-brown hair and shaved cheek appears to me the doctor's remembrance of the portrait of parsons the jesuit father whom he calls in his one generation of a norfolk house the manager and moving spirit of the jesuit mission in england dr jessup when he thought he saw the figure was alone in an old library belonging to a walpole and father parsons was the leader of henry walpole the hero of his just cited book small wonder therefore if the association of ideas made him think of parsons All such elusive visions are thus readily explained as the creatures of an imagination which, through some brain disturbance, is enabled to project its visions forward, on the seats of sense, as the ringing in our ears is produced by some irritation of the hearing center of the brain. The known vision is the reproduction of a present memory, and the unknown vision is a reproduction of a forgotten figure which has nevertheless been stored away in some nook or cranny of the memory chamber. We may thus dispel the illusion by its free explanation, and science has no higher function or nobler use than when, by its aid, a subject like the present is rescued from the domain of the mysterious, and brought within the sphere of ordinary knowledge. End of Scientific Ghosts by Andrew Wilson